Well, here at the Mission Church, we love just reading through and studying through, preaching through uh, full books of the Bible. Start at the beginning and a verse at a time, make our way to the end. Today is no exception to that. Our desire is to pick up right where we left off in John chapter 5. I wrapped up last week in John 5, verse 13. We're going to move on to verse 14 today and move on from there. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to that passage. We have an uncompromising commitment to the Word of God. Our hope and our desire is to not avoid passages of Scripture, but deal with them as exactly as we run across them. And by reading through from the beginning and making our way to the end, I think this is a great way to ensure that all the things that God has for us, we get a chance to experience and be challenged by. This is an important story given to us about Jesus' interaction with the Jews in Jerusalem. I'll be giving the background to it in just a moment. But my hope is to pray through uh, this text with you and sense that we'd ask God to be with us and work on our hearts as we walk through each of these verses. So I'm going to read through verses 13 through 18 today, pray, and then go back through a verse or two at a time. And I hope that you'll be greatly served by our time this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, starting in John chapter 5, I'm going to actually read starting in verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, use this text, we ask. Open our eyes to see Jesus' intention by what he's saying here, that we'd be taught by it. Father, we know that hard hearts have read these texts and gained nothing from them. And soft hearts have gained much from reading these texts. And so, Father, we pray that we'd be the latter and not the former. So soften our hearts with your word. Soften our hearts with your spirit. Open our ears. Protect my speech, Lord, that it would be only truth that comes out in a way that is clear and helpful. We pray these things in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen. Going back to verse 13 there. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now let me quickly back up and kind of set the stage again, make sure we're all understanding where the story has been so far. Jesus is in Jerusalem for one of the holy festivals, a feast day. And while he's here, there's a local tradition that's developed around this pool of Bethesda where the people who had ailments, illnesses, some kind of infirmity would gather around this pool on this particular day, on this season. And they would do so because they believed that when they saw bubbles or some kind of stirring in the water, it would be a sign that perhaps an angel was there and that they would get in the water and the first one in would win the prize of being healed. No one in history knows if there was any actual healing that took place or if it was just a superstition that had come about over time. But we know this is why the people were gathering. They were getting around this pool, staring at the water, waiting for the starter pistol, in order to be healed. This might have been the greatest gathering of sick people in one place that Jesus had ever ever encountered. And Jesus being the great healer was right where you'd expect him to be, except rather than being in the middle of the crowd, he was on the outskirts. And he made his way to one single individual laying on a mat there near this pool. The man's name is not given to us, but we know that he was an invalid. He was lame. He had lost the ability to walk. And he had been without this ability for a period of 38 years. So here this man is, hoping to get into the water and have a miracle happen in his life. But Jesus walks up and he goes directly to this man. He introduces a conversation. He goes to this guy and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Incredibly obvious question for a man laying on a mat. Perhaps even more obvious, being that that's that day and that location. 
And so the man replies, he doesn't understand the question fully, it seems, because he's assuming Jesus knows he wants to be healed. And he says, I just want to get in the water. That's what I want. I don't have anyone here to help me get down into the water. And every time that I would try, somebody else makes their way in front of me. If this was an annual gathering, this guy had opportunity to do this 38 times. And every single one of those, he's not been able to get in, not been able to be healed. And this time he's hopeful, but now he's despondent because he's not going to be able to get in. So what does Jesus do? He tells the man, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And that's exactly what the guy does. He obeys an impossible command. He gets up on his feet, he grabs the mat, and he walks on his way. And some Jews, the word we talked about last week is, is being used of the ruling Jews, the leaders, religious leaders of the day. This is the Pharisees, maybe the Sadducees, some of the Sanhedrin, the leaders. They saw him walking with his mat, which was a violation of the fourth commandment, which was to not work on the Sabbath day. You see this guy carrying the mat, and they call him out. Hey, don't you know what day it is? You're not supposed to be carrying that. And he says, well, it's okay. The guy who healed me, the healer, said it's okay. And they want to know, who is this healer? And that's where we ended last week when we wrapped up to the end of verse 12. Here we are in 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. He didn't have an answer to give to these guys. He gave a bit of the, the little um, the, the police officer sketch. You know, he looked like this. He seemed like, no name. I don't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. First thought is, what a shame. This guy receives healing of a lifetime, the interaction of a, of a lifetime. He doesn't even know who did it. Now, I made this point briefly last week. I'll repeat it again because I think it's so important for you to hear it. It clearly was not the faith of this lame man that healed him. He doesn't even know who Jesus was. How could he be faithful in him? How could he even trusting? He doesn't know Jesus by name. He doesn't know he's the Christ. It is an atrocious lie for someone to think that healing might depend on the quality of a person's faith. And this verse makes it very clear how wrong that is. I don't even know who did it. And why doesn't he know? Because as soon as the healing took place, Jesus went the other way. What a crazy moment. Just picture it again. People around uh, the, the water, their eyes are fixed on the water. They're, they're, they're you know, wiping the water off so they can get a clear view so the first person in can get the healing. Behind them, Jesus does this miracle, and he basically says to this guy, hey, uh, get up, you go that way, I'll go this way. Ready, break. And that's what happens. The guy walks away, and Jesus apparently withdraws from the crowd. How personal was this miracle in such a public setting? The miracle itself was clearly not the point. Jesus obviously did not want the focus to be on his miracle. What would have happened if he made that public, that he was a miracle worker in that setting? Well, clearly, he doesn't care to impress the, the crowds full of people. If ever Jesus was in a position to win a more eager crowd, could we find one more so than at this moment? The whole crowd would have swarmed him. Remember, they were the sick and ailing people. And here's this healer. Christ could have even sinlessly, perfectly said, Behold, crowd, you're staring at the wrong source for healing. I'm right here. Watch. Healed the man. Would that have been sinful for Jesus to do? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, the very next chapter... Jesus is going to perform another miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, in a giant crowd. It's 5,000 heads of household, probably men, maybe 10,000, 15,000 people. He has no trouble performing miracles in large crowds. He doesn't get stage fright. He's not afraid of the acclaim from the people. But here in this moment, that was not the point. So just before we move past this, I want you to consider Christ's perfect humility. How many times a mere mortal... In the flesh, just a human alone. Being in these situations might have craved applause, a craved acclaim and approval, pats on the back. 
Man, I get excited when somebody in a crowd is looking for the guy with the pocket knife. I, I can help. Imagine the moment like this where Jesus is amongst the people who most need healing. Heals one and goes on his way. There's some other purpose in mind. None of Jesus' healings were to be ends in themselves, and that is certainly true of this one here. So what's the purpose? I think there's at least a couple. But one seems high on the mind right now. Verse 14 and 15 tell us, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus has now found this guy, not once, but twice. This is like the luckiest guy in the history of the world. Jesus goes to him once, singles him out of the crowd, and now finds him again, singles him out of the crowd again, in an entirely new location. If you ever need proof that Jesus pursues people, you can see it in this man right here. And he finds him where? In the temple. What significance is there? I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Is it because now his heart is softened to God? Now he wants, he wants to worship and that's why he's there? Maybe. Maybe that's thinking very well of him. Maybe it's just because that's the center of this giant festival. There's a huge party taking place and at all the center of it's right there. You've never been able to go for the last almost four decades. Now you can walk through those crowds yourself. Where is the first place he's going? Probably there. Maybe that's the more skeptical view. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. All we know is that Jesus finds the man again. And what does he say to the man? See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now imagine that command. This command is even more impossible to follow than the first one. It is easier to say to a lame man, walk, than it is to a sinful man, stop sinning. Jesus gives this impossible command. Just like he said, stand up, and he made, him, made it possible for the man to obey. Only by the empowering of God's Holy Spirit can this man not sin to the degree that something worse would happen to him. You know, commentators are a bit split on whether that's talking about a temporary kind of harm, uh, as though maybe this man had performed some kind of sin that caused his breaking, uh, the drunk driver kind of thing, right? His sin resulted in the accident that now he's lost the ability to walk. Don't do sin again, otherwise that could happen. Other commentators see it a little more eternal rather than temporal. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's like, sin no more that. Sin no more that. Nothing worse may happen to you. I, I favor that one. I think that's probably more likely what's being stated there. No longer turn from God. No longer resist God. No longer, no longer refuse to acknowledge the perfect Christ. Sin is so destructive and awful, it'll wreak havoc on a person's life. Worse than decades of lying on a mat is the result of one who does not repent of their sin, whose life ends apart from restoration in Christ, redemption through his blood. And only by his supernatural power can a person have access to that kind of salvation. And what does this guy do? What's the first thing that he does after Jesus tells him these things? He goes and he finds that crowd again. Look at the, the, the Jewish crowd. He says, the man went away and told the Jews... That it was Jesus who would heal them. Now he's got a name. Ha! Huh. I found him. Who well, he found me. You know that guy you were wondering who did that? Jesus is his name. The guy from Nazareth. That healer you've been hearing about. The miracle worker. The same one whose disciples were baptizing down at the Jordan River. Remember the same one who at the Passover feast over here in chapter 2 of John said, tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. It was the same guy. The same one who your own Nicodemus met with. And he taught him what it meant to be born again. Whether or not this man knew of all those details, he finally gave the name to the face. He told these Jews who it was. And no one knows why. Is this in good heart? He's confessing Christ before these Jews? Maybe. Is it him just submitting to religious leaders? They asked. I'll tell them. Trying to get my life squared away and doing that makes sense. Was there a bit of an anger in his heart because he knows he's a sinner and Tell me to sin no more. What's the matter with this guy? I don't know. 
Bible doesn't say. What we do know is that here this man tells the Jews, and now they have a face and they have a name. And what's their response? Verse 16 says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So here they started getting upset with a man carrying a mat. Now they're upset with Jesus for healing the man. They're always upset with somebody. It switches from one to the next. And you'll notice they didn't pounce on that first man. They didn't tackle him to the ground and arrest him, put him in chains. They didn't start stoning him to death right there. They didn't level a fine. They didn't drag him into court. They gave him a verbal warning. But when they hear of a far greater work taking place, now they get really furious. And what's their plan? Persecution. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Can these guys be serious? What person, what must be in someone's heart to experience such a God-glorifying, supernatural healing moment and the response be anger and frustration and somebody must pay? That's what they do. At best, at best, their response seems disproportionate to the infraction here. Like imagine the, uh, the inmates at a maximum security prison in the orange jumpsuits and all hardened and stuff. What are you in for? Jaywalking. It's that kind of like, oh my goodness, that's that? This should be the result? And Jesus does refer back to this exact same event in chapter 7. And he does say there that this healing at Bethesda, this event is what first stirred up the Jews against him. That's what really happens, at least in the book of John. I'll read for you chapter 7, verse 23. Jesus says, If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You see? So again, Jesus is going, I know what really got you stirred up. I remember the moment. That's why you're really angry with me. All the way back to restoring a man's health, making his whole body well, and he did it on the Sabbath. And you might be tempted to think that this level of hyper-scrutiny was simply a mark of a less lenient time. The ritualistic superstitions of a long bygone era. Religious authorities had nothing better to do with their time than to scrutinize and witch hunt every little moment of activity on the Sabbath. You might even think there's no way people today with our enlightened minds could possibly think like these guys did. And if you think that way, first, you'd be wrong. Second, you're going to have a real hard time understanding the Pharisees. I want to show you a few things that might be helpful. If you want to get your, your, your mind in this text, understand what it was that Jesus was dealing with all throughout his life and ministry, and clearly here in this passage. After the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the, the Jews will begin writing a bunch of uh, rabbinic traditions down, and they'll collect those together in a scripture they call the Talmud, okay? There's a few of these, uh, a couple different versions of these, but these have existed for hundreds of years, even thousands of years now, and they're still rigidly held to by Orthodox Jews. In the Talmud, rabbis have identified 39 categories of forbidden acts on the Sabbath. That's the categories. They have 39 of them. And the 39th is don't carry things. That's the, that's the summary there. Let me give you an example of some of these categories because lots of things fall into 39 categories. Because you might think 39. 39 things you're not supposed to do? Eh, is that that much? Consider, you're not supposed to start fires. This was one that went back to the ancient days. Not supposed to start fires. But this prohibition is extended by rabbis today to using electronic devices, which may make, inadvertently, even imperceptible sparks in the machinery. That's why, for Orthodox Jews, they may not flip light switches on. It makes a spark. You may not use a phone. It could make sparks. You certainly may not drive a combustion engine, because that will make sparks. And so, sparks qualify as starting fires. God is displeased. That's what's going down. All y'all broke the Sabbath driving here today. 
That's the way that Orthodox Jews would think of this. And this is why in Jewish neighborhoods, even today, New York City has Jewish neighborhoods today. Jerusalem today, Jewish neighborhoods, many places in Israel, where elevators have Sabbath settings, that when it gets to Friday into Saturday, the elevators stop at every floor on the way up and the way down. No one has to push buttons, so you don't have to violate the Sabbath by pushing a button. Whole appliance companies, even big ones like GE, Kenmore, Samsung, they make appliances with Sabbath settings. I accidentally stumbled onto one the other day on my oven double oven that we have putting something in, Sabbath setting, where basically you set it so that it stays on at a particular heat for days straight, usually 72 hours, so that you don't have to touch a button, but you can still have it on to heat the home or to put bread in. They make appliances like uh, light switches that turn on on timers or motion sensors or delay settings. They even make some with delay timers. You can come in, press the button necessary for the electronic device to turn on, but there's a timer so you can walk out of the room and sit down in another room and then it'll turn on so you weren't present for the starting of the spark. Get it? Go check your appliances when you get home. I bet you'll find some of those there. Jews, like I said before, can't drive today. What if you have to drive? What if there's an emergency? What if your wife is going into labor? No joke. I found these on Chabad.org. These are modern, uh, modern uh, writings by rabbis this very day. One of the main purposes for rabbis today, is to teach the people how to not violate Sabbath principles. It's one of, the, one of the high things that they do. Help you scrutinize every detail. Rabbis have gotten together and said, this should be the protocol if your wife is pregnant and you have to go farther than a walk to get her to a hospital. Call ahead of time to establish some plans with the taxi cab service so that if she goes into labor on the Sabbath, they can come. You don't open the door, they'll open the door, they'll walk in, they'll get money off of your counter in a predetermined amount that's already sealed up an envelope because you can't pay anybody anything on a Sabbath. They'll carry your bags to the car, take you into the room, make sure you get to the hospital, and you're good to go. He'll break the Sabbath, but you won't, so you're fine. You might be asking, well, how do you even call the taxi cab service? The answer is simple. You have to have a non-Jewish friend call for you, or if in the very worst situation you have to do it yourself, don't use your fingertips, use your knuckles instead, because God won't consider that a sin. While you are permitted to read religious literature on the Sabbath, if a book in your home has writing along the edge, have you ever seen this? Libraries oftentimes like stamp like a, on the side of the, the, the pages there. Because the prohibition is to no lo- not read or to erase, write or to erase. If you open that book, you've now sinned against God on the Sabbath because you have taken a word and broken it, and now you've written that word by closing the pages again. So library books are not supposed to have been read on the Sabbath day. You may not hang something on a tree because you may inadvertently knock an acorn out of it, and that qualifies as picking fruit on the Sabbath. It's a kind of harvest. But you may hang something on something else that's hanging on a tree. So you can't hang your coat on a tree, but you can hang your coat on a basket that's on a tree. That's okay. That doesn't violate the Sabbath. Your kids may swing on a swing set as long as it's not touching a tree. If it is on a tree, you're breaking the Sabbath. Do you you hear this? This is the reason I'm doing this. This exists today, and it existed back in Jesus' day. People actually have thought like this and do right now. Rigid expectations on Sabbath observing have led to all sorts of gimmicky workarounds and technical loopholes. That's the legalism that is rife within this kind of community that Jesus is dealing with. The invalid with the mat, he was guilty of carrying an object on the Sabbath. Even to this day, an Orthodox Jew is not permitted to carry an object inside his house or outside his house of a distance of more than four cubits. That's 6.3 feet. He can go six feet, carry an object. That's fine. More than that, God is displeased. And regardless of the distance, he may not pick up an object in the private domain and deposit it in the public domain or vice versa. You can't take something out of his home and put it it, uh, inside the home or vice versa. That's Sabbath breaking. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if you find something in your pocket on the Sabbath as you're walking? Good question. They have a lot of solutions to this. Let me give you... Eight solutions modern rabbis say that you can do if you accidentally find that your wallet is in your pocket when you're taking a stroll on the Sabbath day in order for God to not be displeased with you. This is what you should do. These are, these are I'm not making any of these up. These are literal rabbinical suggestions of how what to be done today with chapter and verse con- connections to the Talmud. Number one, you find that in your pocket an accident. Oh no, whatever you do, don't stop walking because that'd be considered depositing the item. You can turn out your pocket 
and just let it fall to the ground and be garbage to you. Evidently, littering is not against the Talmud, but you may not touch the object, grab the pocket, the lining of the pocket, so the lining of the pocket can make it fall, and you won't be guilty of depositing the object. It'll just happenstance falling out. That's the first thing you can do. Second option, if the item's too valuable to discard and throw away, you can dump it on the ground by the same action and then guard it until the sun goes down. Just sit on a bench nearby or stand by it, kind of wander around it until the sun goes down. Once the sun's down, then God's okay with you picking it up. Third option, allow a non-Jew to hold on to the item until after the Sabbath. But there's two conditions to that. Number one, you can't ask a non-Jew to do it. They have to offer it freely. And second, you can only make the transfer while still walking. You can't do it while standing still. Fourth, you can ask a mentally handicapped Jewish person to hold it for you because they are exempt from these particular laws. Fifth, you can ask a Jewish minor to hold it for you. Sixth, and this one's my favorite, never go farther than four cubits at a time. So you can walk six feet, not 6.3, stop and take a rest. Most rabbis say it's better if you sit down to actually establish that you're taking a rest. Get back up, walk six more feet. Sit down again, take a rest, get up six more feet and do that all the way until you get home so God is not displeased with you. Seventh, pass it back and forth between you and another Orthodox Jewish friend. But again, every four, uh, every four cubits, every six feet, not any longer than that. Last option, eighth, is run. Because Talmud, Talmudic tradition allows running with the item because when a person runs, they're less likely to stop and inadvertently qualify as depositing the object. Because if you stop, it's like depositing it in a standstill state. And all this must be realized, the solution found and acted upon before walking that distance. Or you are now a Sabbath breaker, as guilty as Jesus, as guilty as the man carrying a mat. Oh, and just for the fun of it, what should you do when you finally get home? That pass-off city, well, however you finally arrive back home, you're not allowed to put that thing back in your house, because now it went from public to private domain. You have to do it over your shoulder, happenstance, throw it into the household over the threshold. That's the only way that God will be pleased with your activity on a Sabbath day. This is today. This is 2023. Pharisees saying how you can honor God with your activity on the Sabbath day. Do you think that's what God had in mind? Reading this stuff makes me furious because these are the exact same people that murder our Christ. Do you think when God had said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, what he had in mind was a timer delay, light switches, and finger knuckle dialing on a phone? This is exactly what Jesus is calling out. People fell for this kind of ludicrous madness in Jesus' day, and they still do now. This is in us. We could be this way. You might ask, as I would want to know, where in the world do guys like this get these things from God's Word? And the answer is, they don't get it from God's Word. These are human traditions elevated to a status equal to or higher than God's Word. And that's one of the marks of legalism. Oftentimes, the legalist doesn't have verses that doesn't stop him from making judgments. They cherry-pick a few verses, interpret them in weird ways, turn those interpretations into new laws, and impose those demands on others. That's how you can know what that is. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Exactly what they were doing. And the people trusted them. Well, clearly, they're the most religious. Clearly, they're the most faithful. Clearly, they're the experts in the law. How could they be wrong? This is why I think Jesus picks on this particular issue with these Pharisees to expose them as hypocrites. Remember, Jesus didn't, doesn't do anything by happenstance. It's never by accident. It's never that he does it and goes, oh, I, I didn't realize it was the Sabbath. It's not that Jesus, someone would say, didn't you know telling them to carry the mat was going to cause a problem? I, I didn't even think of it. He's our perfect Christ. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knew exactly what he was doing. And why is it that he would draw on this particular issue and point to this particular problem on repeat throughout his ministry? Why Sabbath? Why that one? He says it this way in Matthew chapter 15. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You see, that's, that's where their errors had been highlighted so clearly in that day. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
So these guys had made up their own rules, and they were teaching them as doctrines of God. God wants you to do this. Why? Because we think it's best. Like they'd even attack Jesus personally. They'd attack his disciples repeatedly on Sabbath breaking. But you need to know, the Sabbath was never intended to be a day of total idleness or entire cessation of anything that could even loosely be defined as work. It was designed to be a day of rest in and trust in the continual work of God. That's why Jesus says in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed by God for our good, to serve us. And even if there was some way that we could see what Jesus does here as work properly in that particular way, of the kind that should have waited until after the Sabbath, these Jews could not offer some grace. So I read that whole long list to you. You know, kept coming to mind all those pages upon pages and pages. What do you do if someone calls you on a Sabbath day? What do you do if you find yourself in a situation where you have to push a button? What do you do if you're filling the blanks? There's tons of these things on there. And they never just go, you're imperfect. Lean on the grace of God and do the best you can. It was never the answer. It was always by following the legalistic traditions of men exalted to the position of law. These Jews could not offer some grace to Jesus. They couldn't. They wouldn't do it. They refused to let it go. You got healed? Well, just get home quick with your mat. Don't let me see it again. They couldn't do it. Who would dare defy our traditions and our demands? Jesus was not breaking God's commandments. Jesus was not sinning and saying, it's okay for me to sin. They greatly misunderstood the Sabbath. They were wrong. Jesus was right. But the problem is not simply one of a theological disagreement. The problem is hardness of heart. That's what he says in Mark 3. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And he asked this in the context of a bunch of Jews who got a crippled man, a guy with a crippled hand, in their midst, and they wanted to set up Jesus to see, to watch him sin, as they think, on the Sabbath. They were literally trying to bait somebody to sin on the Sabbath, as they saw it. And Jesus said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. What happens next? This is crazy. The very next verse. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Did you catch that? Did you catch the hypocrisy? Apparently, speaking to somebody and him being healed dishonors God on the Sabbath. But setting up a person to sin and then conspiring with non-believers to torture and kill, the healer is not dishonoring to God? These guys were utter and absolute hypocrites. Why the Sabbath? Why did Jesus press on this one? Because it's one that could so clearly be exposed. They weren't going to murder somebody in public. Well, other than Jesus, obviously, we see that. He wasn't going to get a murder to take place. And go, oh, the Pharisees, look how they killed somebody. Ah, oh, look at the adultery they committed. Ah, oh, look, look at the false gods they bowed down to. Nothing else was so publicly observable, their hypocrisy, than was the experience of Sabbath observance. If Jesus says that hatred is murder of the heart, lust is adultery of the heart, what do you think would constitute Sabbath breaking of the heart? And would that not also be a sin against God? These men could not care less about the condition of the heart. So what's Jesus' justification for the labor? Here he goes. He heals this man. Now he's going to stand before them, and it sounds like that's what's going down. Because the next words in verse 17 say, but Jesus answered them. Now, the word for answered here is not merely gave a reply. It's the same word that's used of a person standing up in a public court to give a defense. So maybe it's a bit more of a formal uh, kind of uh, statement from Jesus. Some have seen it as that. Perhaps that's the case. Nevertheless, this is his answer to their concern. He broke the Sabbath. We need to kill this guy. What's his answer? 
Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. There's a couple things going on here, but we're only going to deal with one today. One of them is Jesus calling God my father. We're going to get to that because the majority of the rest of this discourse is Jesus discussing his relationship with the father uniquely. So that's where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. If you want to know where we're headed, that's where we're going. I'm going to, I'm going to wait till we unpack it a bit more in upcoming weeks. For now, look at the part about working. My father is working until now, and I am working. What's he mean? Well, God governs all existence. He supplies the daily wants of his creation. He does not cease being active ever. God is working right now. He's working always. So Jesus' answer to these guys is not, show me the verse. Where does it say I can't heal? There's no verse about healing and get into a theological debate. He doesn't do that, although he could. Nor does he say, that wasn't work. Aha, no sweat, no sweat. It was just words. Can I not say words on the Sabbath? And argue over definitions of work. He could have. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't bicker over definitions. Instead, he highlights his relationship with the Father. And he highlights the fact that the Father is working. I'm just doing what God is doing. The Father is working. And so am I. Commentator J.C. Ryle says, He does not break the fourth commandment when he heals the sick any more than the Father breaks it when he causes the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the Sabbath. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. If God stopped working in all respects right now, the universe would go out of existence. Everything would stop and unravel in an instant. It would cease to exist. Everything that goes on goes on because the Creator is consistently and constantly has His hands of creation on us. And He does this all day, every day, every moment, every second. He's not the watchmaker God who sets up the universe and goes back on a retreat and watches, wow, look at the random acts of creation. doesn't work that way. And does that explanation work for Jesus? Oh, it's okay. God's working, so. Does that work? Oh, well, that being the case, carry on. No, you and I know that's not what happens. Verse 18 tells us, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, first infraction, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, second infraction. Those are the two reasons, and those are here. We're going to see those repeated elsewhere in John. We're going to see those in the other gospel accounts too. It's those two things that they pressed on with Jesus. He broke the Sabbath. Y'all saw it, didn't you? You all saw it. You saw the healings. You saw the work. And the second thing, he claims to be God. That was harder to pin down with him because Jesus was always very careful how he spoke with these hypocritical Jews. And just so there's no mistake here, See with me that the persecution mentioned in this pre- the previous verse, this is why the Jews were persecuting him, was not merely shunning. It was not the issuing of a fine. It was not some sort of slap on the wrist, verbal warning. It was a plot to torture and crucify this healer. That's the persecution in mind. Highest possible conceivable punishment that these guys could pull off. And they needed the Romans to do it. They couldn't do a public torture on their own. They might be able to get away with stoning someone in the street. And they were willing to get in bed with Satan, so to speak, and work with anyone. They would, they would unite in a coalition with the most God-hitting people that they could find in order to hurt this man who dares to tell people to love God. Those were the charges, breaking the Sabbath, making himself equal with God. And the Jews were correct about that much, at least on the make himself to be God part. Because Jesus referred to God as his Father, and that was indeed a divine claim. Again, we'll start unpacking that more next week. I want to go ahead and close our time together with just a point of application from Jesus' teaching here on the Sabbath. 
on the Sabbath. We're going to get a few more chances to unpack Sabbath more in upcoming chapters, but I just want to do a little bit of that with you right now. Because Christians today have different views on the Sabbath. Most Christians uh, believe that the Sabbath properly is now observed on Sunday, the day when Jesus raised, rather than Saturday, the day that God rested after creation. So most Christians today do typically honor Sunday as our modern Sabbath. But there still are differing views on exactly what Sabbath rest in our day constitutes. I want to give you just three things to keep in mind. And all of them I think we find right here in this text. The first is this. Good work is today and was always permitted on the Sabbath. Good work is always permitted on the Sabbath. This is any age, any era, any time, Jesus' day and our own. Matthew 12, 12, Jesus says it very simply. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If these Jews would have just paused and been like, wait, 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 someone work, just real quick pause. Did he do something that we could all say was good? Yes? Let's, can we let this go? Can we convene? Go to lunch? For as long as God's people have observed the Sabbath, works of necessity and mercy are always permitted. This is why if you help out in the nursery here on Sunday morning, or in the tech booth, or use your skills up here on the worship team, or you help out greet people, or help set up chairs and clean bathrooms last minute before people come up on a Sunday morning, and on this, our Christian Sabbath day, you put efforts and energy and sweat and labor towards the things that we do in here, you can do that with total peace before God. Works of necessity, mercy, and worship. None of these things are breaking the fourth commandment. Moms, how many of you guys get your kids ready to come out the door on Sunday morning to get to church? Yeah, you know that's work, don't you? Lots of things that we do could qualify as labor in any way. But God does not judge us as breakers of his commandments when we do good. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's the first principle that we get from this right here. Jesus will use this exact language elsewhere to make that very clear. Jesus does good. These guys don't like it. The second thing we'll draw from this text, I think, is a warning. This might be the most obvious thing we see here. Be very careful when it comes to views on the Sabbath because there is lots of opportunity here for legalism. Maybe more here than many other places. As we've seen among people in Jesus' day and even in our own day, opinions regarding Sabbath observation have been leveraged by Satan to cause great division amongst God's people. He often stokes legalistic judgments in the hearts regarding Sabbath. Sabbath. It's one of his favorite go-to places. So if so, you might be the brother or sister in Christ who, who has a desire to honor the Sabbath that we see in the Word, and so you choose to let the grass grow long and you don't cut it on Sunday if you made it to that point in the week. I'm, I'm going to rest. I'm not going to mow the lawn today. And I'm just going to honor this day of rest. So I see in the Word, I want to honor the Lord. And you can do that to the glory of God. Praise be His holy name. Honor that conviction. You may be the person who says, man, my rest is in a redemptive rest. Christ fulfilled all the work I needed to fulfill. My rest is awaiting in heaven for that one. La-di-da. And mow the lawn on Sundays and have total peace about it before God. And you should be able to do so without judgment. In fact, the Apostle Paul explicitly draws on this and says, don't let anyone else judge you in regards to a new moon or a festival or a Sabbath. Don't let other believers judge what you do on the Sabbath. It's the only of the Ten Commandments that's ever said of in the New Testament. Don't let someone else judge you on the breaking of that. So brothers and sisters, be very careful here. Watch out. The enemy loves to use this as a point of legalism, measurement against me or my brother. Well, I didn't walk quite as far as he walked on Sunday, so I'm a little godlier than him. Guys, we're all prone to it, and it's happened all throughout history. In fact, Sabbath observance often becomes a litmus test for legalism in the Bible and I think in our lives. So first, good works always permitted on the Sabbath. Feel confident of that. Second, be careful with your views on what you impose on others regarding Sabbath observance today. And third, the Sabbath is primarily about, always has been, always will be, the, the Sabbath is primarily about trusting in God's work and not our own work. Trusting in God's work and not our own work. This is, this is what the Sabbath was about from the very beginning. 
it does harken back to Genesis. It's the first place we start to see some of the Sabbath play out. But do you remember in the Bible when it was that God officially institutes Sabbath observation for his people? It was at Mount Sinai, at the beginning of the wilderness days. The Israelites who had come out of the Exodus and they were given the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments by Moses, and the Fourth Commandment was given by him then. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall rest. And this is true not only for the Jew, but also for the sojourner in your midst, and even your animals. Give everybody a break. Rest as God rested on the seventh day of creation. When we rest from work, particularly in a day we choose to honor, when we rest from work, it is a demonstration of our trust that the work is finished on our behalf. The Jews in that day, the only way that they could eat was by being given manna from heaven. There wasn't enough food out in the wilderness for them to survive. So God would rain down bread from heaven uh, that they would go and gather every morning. And when they went out there on a Monday morning, do you remember the stories? If they had gathered more than they needed for that day, they, they gathered enough for Monday and Tuesday, what would happen to the Tuesday portion overnight? Do you remember? It would go rancid. It wouldn't survive. Like it would break down. They could only gather enough for one day at a time. And they had to trust that God's going to bring that stuff out tomorrow and they'll go out and work for it again. He made sure they're going to work all six days. That's the major part of the Sabbath. It's not just rest, but work. There's a six days of work. You're, you're good. If, you're, if you want to eat, you got to work. And so they have to get up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And when they get to Friday, how much were they supposed to get then? And the answer is two days worth. They were not supposed to go out on the Sabbath. They're Saturday. They were not supposed to go out and and gather for food. But what about that whole rancid situation? Did the biology change? Did the physics change? Did the elements, the chemistry change? I don't know. All I know is that supernaturally, God preserved a double portion on Friday. And the people could trust that it would go rancid any other day, but on this day, God will provide from that portion on his day of rest. So every single week, the people would be relying on, God, I will not eat tomorrow if you do not preserve what has been gathered in our workday. God is doing his work right now, a work of redemption planned before the ages began, and we as believers chiefly must rest in that. You are not saved by any of your own work. You're not saved by your observance of the fourth commandment or any of the other commandments. And if you're not a believer today, you need to know this. You have broken every command that God's ever given. Every one of the Ten Commandments, you are guilty of to some degree. And as a result, you are a lawbreaker and you deserve punishment as lawbreakers do. But Christ, the perfect one and only Son of God, goes to a cross to die a death for those who would believe on Him so that you can have eternal life as He has. That means that even though you are a sinner and a lawbreaker and deserving of punishment, Christ takes the punishment on your your behalf. And you don't need to do special works to get there. You don't need to scrub all the dirt off of yourself in order to be seen as holy. You don't need to start strictly observing all the laws perfectly before you're seen as righteous in God's eyes. You have access to all the righteousness of God in Christ by faith and faith alone. If you're not a believer, that's what we want for you today. Not for you to effort scrubbing yourself clean, working hard to follow all the commandments and to not break any any of the others. Instead, we want you to have faith in Christ, believe on him and be saved. And just as he died, he was buried, and then he was raised to new life. He literally walked out of the tomb. You too can have eternal life if you believe in Christ. That's what we want for you. And what you need to know is that you must love God It's the greatest commandment that there is. The great commandments are to love God first, others second, and self last. And that's the greatest guard against legalism that there is. Love is the cure to legalism. These Jews had gotten some things very wrong, but they had some things right. They had the law. They were experts in it. They knew God's word that had yet been delivered to them, the Old Testament. They knew it. They taught from it. They held to it very strictly, many of them. The problem is not that they loved the law, but that they didn't love God. That was the problem, and Jesus calls it out over and over and over and over again. Love fixes and cures and heals, but law without love destroys everything. When love fades away, everything falls 
apart. If you're newer to the faith, this is what we want for you. We want for you to love God. He'll take care of all the things that have to happen in your life. Sit down with someone to disciple you and walk you through those things. But first and foremost, you need to learn how to love your God. Imagine meeting with a newlywed, a young man who just got married, and he wants to get all the books on marriage on his desk and watch all the videos and sit through all the lessons and the conferences to learn everything he can about marriage. Some older man needs to come up and go, dude, put the books away and go spend time with your wife. You need to get to know her more than the topic of marriage. You need to become an expert of her more than an expert of the concept of this kind of union. Let that drive. In a very similar way, we must grow in our love for God. We must spend time with Him. We must get to know Him and what He has done for us before we try to figure out what we can do for Him. As is so often the case in the Bible, Order, trajectory, direction means so much. We must love the law of God, but we must love God first and foremost. And we have to begin there. These Pharisees certainly didn't. These Jews certainly didn't. And Jesus was demonstrating a great love for the people that he, was came, to, he came to save And it really got under the skin of those who loved the law more than him. Let us never be like that. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for these teachings of Jesus. We thank you for what's been written here and preserved. God, we want to love you more. We want to love your law, but Lord, we, we don't want to love your law more than we love you. We want to learn to love you. We want to fall in love with you all over again if we've fallen out in some way, Lord, if there's been some ways in which we've not spent the time with you that we ought. We've not given our hearts to you in all the areas of our lives that we ought. Father, just as Jesus approached this man at the pool of Bethesda and then he found him again in the temple, Lord, we know that our Christ is a pursuing Christ. Father, I pray that Christ would continue to pursue our hearts that the Holy Spirit would draw us in sanctification to become more like Him. And Father, thank You so much for Your Word and how You've always used Your Word to do such a mighty work. Help us to love You more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.